It's Friday 23rd of February and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. Coming up, what next for Japan stocks after they finally crawl their way back above their 1990 high and an exclusive look at our long-run global economic outlook. But first, Neil Shearing, Group Chief Economist, is with me to walk over the week gone by and anticipate the big events in the coming five trading days. Hi there, Neil. Hi, David. I wanted to start by asking about the Franco-Prussian War kidding it's got to be about inflation central banking doesn't it i'm afraid so we're back to inflation we're back to monetary policy one day inflation will be back at target and rates will be neutral and and we can talk about bismarck but this is not that day is it we've got eurozone and us inflation data in the coming week it's all coming as rate cut expectations are being pushed further into 2024 central bankers for the most part seem to be telling markets to cool their boots Let's start with the Eurozone data haul because our Europe team's been tracking signs that services inflation is looking a bit sticky. Is that a risk for the coming week's release, do you think? Well, I think it certainly is a risk. It's the key part of the release that we're going to be keeping an eye on. I mean, for what it's worth, we think that both headline and core inflation in the Eurozone are going to come down. So we've got headline inflation down to 2.5% in February in, in next week's release and core inflation down to 3%. Energy inflation goes up. That's more than offset by fall in food inflation. And then you're right, there's the core part, which is obviously the, the, the part that the ECB is going to be most focused on. And there are some signs that the falls in core inflation have been slowing and perhaps service inflation has become a bit stickier in recent months. Now, to some extent, that's not the big surprise. Obviously, core inflation has come down a long way. Like I say, it's back at kind of 3%, and we and we still think it's going to fall further. So some of those factors that have pushed up services inflation, I don't think will persist, but it's clearly, as you say, rattled a few on the governing council. We've had a few speeches over the past week or so pushing back on the idea of rate cuts in April. And it's now the case that I think markets are pricing a less than 50% chance of a of an April rate cut. We'll be publishing our ECB watch, which is the publication in which we preview the forthcoming ECB meeting in the coming week. We'll take a view on on April's meeting there. For now, we think it's probably too soon to completely rule out an April rate cut, given weakness in the real economy, of course, German recession confirmed in some of the GDP data over the past week or so. And given the fact that we think core inflation has got up further to, to come down, it's probably a bit too soon to rule out an, an April rate cut still. What about US PCE? Uh, this is the inflation series that the Fed watches. The next release is out this coming Thursday. It comes on the heels of that massive January payrolls number and, and the hot CPI report for January. What's this week's release going to do to expectations for that first rate cut, do you think? Yes. Now, first point is that this is PCE data for January. We've got the, the inflation data for the Eurozone is for February. This is for January. So that's the first point to make. The second point as it relates to the US is that it's PCE that the Fed looks at rather than CPI. And in particular, it's core PCE. So that's that's the number to be watching for and paying attention to. It increased by 0.24% in December. We think it's going to increase by 0.35% in January. That 0.35%, of course, is important because it gets rounded up by to 0.4%. And I suspect if that's the number, it might send a few more shockwaves and a few more jitters through bond markets. And it will reinforce this narrative that inflation or rather the disinflation process has stalled. When you unpack exactly what's going on under the hood, I think there are fewer reasons to be concerned. A lot of the increase in 
PCE, core PCE that we're anticipating in uh, January is about stronger gains in healthcare services and portfolio management charges that are linked to a strong stock market rather than factors that are necessarily driven by the underlying strength of demand in the economy and underlying price pressures. So perhaps less to be concerned about when you dig into the data than the headline number might suggest for core PCE, but I, I think it could be another week in which the, the inflation data start to unsettle bond markets. Let's look further ahead. Let's look past these inflation releases, look past central banks and hone in on November's US election because we're continuing to add to our analysis of what this election could mean for the global economy. Uh, this past week, we've had two major pieces of work uh, on on aspects of, of that, that the, the sort of the global macro risk, the market risks around that. Uh, the latest looks at what could happen if Donald Trump is re-elected and makes good on his tariff threats that he's making on the campaign trail. Looking at our report and, and some of the election polling data, it would be hard not to conclude that on the economy, at least, Beijing must be pretty nervous about, about his re-election. Yes, that's right. I mean, actually, when you look at the effect that the first round of Trump tariffs had on China's economy in the 2016-2020 presidency, it's pretty difficult to ascertain there's any effect at all, really. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the impact of tariffs on China's exporters was offset partially by a, a weaker renminbi. But also, we saw some routing of exports through third-party countries as well. So that, that helped to kind of mitigate the effects of, of tariffs on, on China's export base. I think this time will be different and it'll be different for a couple of reasons. One is that the scope of the action that is being proposed by Trump at this stage looks larger. Of course, he's the presumptive nominee and he has to win an election too. So we shouldn't assume that he's going to be the next president. And what's more, policies often change from what are discussed on the campaign trail. But nonetheless, what he's talked about so far, 60% tariff on Chinese goods, for example, looks much bigger in scope and size than, than we, we've seen previously. In order to fully offset the effect of that tariff, the renminbi would need to fall to something like eight and a half against the dollar, our estimates suggest. And I think it's difficult to envisage a slide in the, the currency on that scale, given the destabilizing effects that it would risk. So that's the first point. So, scope of the tariffs and action proposed by Trump seems to be greater. And the, the scope for the, the, the currency to offset that is smaller. I think the other point is that the nature of China's economy has shifted over the past three, four years. In particular, we've seen large investment in China's manufacturing base, particularly during the, the pandemic. We've also seen China's trade surplus, current account surplus, rebound as a share of global GDP over the past couple of years. So it's now much larger than was the case in, in 2016, 2017. Now, you won't get that by looking at the Chinese trade data. But when we use the Chinese customs data, which takes account of the fact that a large chunk of Chinese exports increasingly go through what are called bonded trade zones and therefore don't appear in the Chinese balance of payments data, the Chinese trade surplus looks a lot larger. So China's invested a lot in manufacturing capacity. Its trade surplus with the rest of the world has already rebounded a long way. And now there are concerns, not just in Washington, but also in Europe about Chinese firms dumping manufactured goods on the rest of the world because they have this excess capacity. So I think that the geoeconomic and the geopolitical context has moved on a lot in the last four or five years. Putting all that together, what does this mean in terms of, of global fracturing or, or fragmentation, as the IMF calls it? How does this 
fit into that that narrative that we've been following the past few years? Well, I think one point to make is that whoever wins the presidential election in the US this year, fracturing is not going, going to go away. It's striking that the tariffs that Trump put in place in his first presidency, Biden kept in place during his presidency. And in fact, the scope of the the measures against China actually widened, has actually widened under under Biden. So fracturing is not going to go away. Now, we spent a lot of time over the past couple of years, including on this podcast, talking about small yards and high fences uh, when it comes to US-China fracturing. Uh, the small yard being a small area of bilateral trade or investment flows affected by controls, but the high fence being the fact that those controls are very strict and stringent. So large amounts of US-China trade and investment flows don't really get affected by fracturing, but those aspects that are affected by fracturing, for example, chips and batteries and advanced manufacturing and biotech, the controls in those areas are, can be very stringent and, and the effects of those controls can be wrenching. One of the issues, though, is that we have never really defined just how big that small yard is and, and what's included in it. And I think one of the dangers or risks with, say, a 60% unilateral tariff on Chinese goods proposed by Trump is that unintentionally that yard becomes much larger. So we move from a situation where we have a small yard and a high fence to a, a larger yard, but still a high fence. So we unintentionally perhaps expand the scope of US-China fracturing to include uh, a much larger number of areas. The other big piece that we had on Trump this week, all about his impact on financial markets, as big a splash as his policies could cause, I think that piece concluded it wouldn't be enough to burst this AI-driven stock market bubble. I mean, that's key, isn't it? This is a tech-driven market bubble like railways, like the internet before it. Given we've had these NVIDIA earnings as well this past week, talk a little bit about market bubbles and, and the development of technology like AI. Well, I think one of the big differences this time around compared to previous episodes is that actually the tech companies that that are at the forefront of the AI revolution are hugely profitable and hugely cash generative. So if you think about the the, the tech stocks that inflated during the dot-com boom of the early 2000s, often many of these companies were kind of loss-making, whereas you know, we've just seen, as you say, NVIDIA's results, huge revenue growth, huge profit growth. And the same is true of the other magnificent seven. So I think the context is slightly different. However, if we look at conventional measures of valuation, it does look pretty stretched in the tech space. Look at price earnings ratios, they look stretched. If you look at measures relative to other valuations, so for example, valuations of equities relative to bonds, it looks stretched too. So I think this probably is the early stages of a bubble, notwithstanding the fact that these companies are profitable. And there are lessons from history here. You're right that it is common for bubbles to inflate around new technologies. However, one of the other lessons from history, as Keynes says, is that bubbles tend to inflate for a lot longer than one can stay solvent. And if you look at the measures of valuation stretched though they are, they're nowhere near as stretched as they became at the height of the dot-com bubble. So my sense is, yes, this is a bubble that's starting to inflate, but on balance, it's probably got a lot further to go. Neil Shearing there on market bubbles, Trump versus China, and our inflation previews for the coming week. I'll add our US elections page to the podcast notes. It's the gateway to our growing body of analysis on the macro and market risks around November's vote. 
Uh, on bubbles, I'll add a note by John Higgins, our chief markets economist, which explains why this bubble is different, what that means for the market outlook. All of this analysis is available as part of a subscription to CE Advance, our premium platform. Learn more at capitaleconomics.com forward slash CE hyphen advance. That's forward slash CE hyphen advance. Staying on markets, Japan's Nikkei 225 index finally hit a new record high this past week, overtaking the previous record set 34 years ago. The performance of Japanese stocks has been helping fuel talk that the country's economy and its industrial base has finally turned a corner after a decades-long hangover from its debt binge. I spoke earlier to Marcel Tillian, our Asia-Pacific head, and senior markets economist Tom Matthews about whether there's anything to the hype around the rise in Japanese share prices. Here's that conversation Hi, now. Hi, Marcel. Hi, David. Hello. Marcel, I'd like to start with you. What we're seeing in the stock market, to what extent does this reflect a fundamental shift in perceptions around Japan Inc.? Well, there's definitely been a narrative that there has been a, a fundamental improvement, particularly in corporate governance, that explains the recent strength in the stock market. And if you look at uh, indicators of corporate governance, they, they certainly have improved. So the, the Tokyo Stock Exchange compiles an, an annual yearbook with, with lots of indicators, and they, they pretty much all point to, to in, in the right direction. The key problem, though, is that you, it's, it's a bit more difficult to see that on the ground. So if you look at the, the profit margins of Japanese firms, Japan ranked in the middle of the pack among G7 countries on the eve of the pandemic, but its profit margins are now the lowest in the G7. So it's, it's a bit difficult to argue that this improvement in corporate governance is, is having any real effects on, on corporate behavior. I think what's less appreciated, though, is, is the fact that higher inflation could actually be quite positive for the stock market. Now, in principle, if you have high inflation, you should also have a higher discount rate. So it's not necessarily positive. But the Bank of Japan obviously has kept interest rates at close to zero, and, and long-term interest rates also haven't risen all that much, even as, as the Bank of Japan has loosened uh, its, its grip on, on the bond market. So if you think that inflation in the long run will be much higher than it was before the pandemic, that is definitely a positive for the stock market and could explain some of the strength uh, that we've seen recently. I think the main problem, though, is that investors are conflating cyclical strength in corporate earnings, mostly driven by the very weak yen with a structural improvement. So the weaker yen boosts corporate profits in, in basically through channels. The, the first is through export earnings. Now, Japanese firms mostly price their exports in US dollars and, and price them to market, which means that they don't typically adjust those prices very much. So weaker yen basically boosts the, the yen value of those, those foreign currency imports. But more uh, exports, but more importantly, Japanese firms earn a lot of money from their overseas subsidiaries, and those earnings are worth one to one more in in yen if the, if the yen weakens. So a lot of the strength in corporate profits that we've seen over the last couple of years is simply down to the weak yen. And once the yen does start to strengthen as as overseas interest rates fall back again, that tailwind will turn into a headwind. Tom, tailwind to headwind. Talk about bit about the yen in driving these stocks and, and talk a bit about where we see the yen going over 2024 and, and obviously implications for Japanese equities. Yeah, look, I mean, to start with, we see the yen quite a bit stronger over the rest of this year. So we're forecasting 130 to the dollar. That's almost 15% stronger than its current level of around 150. 
And there's a couple of reasons for that, really. The first is where we see relative interest rates going. So it's interest rate differentials to the US that have been really the big driver of the weakness of the yen over the past couple of years. You know, we saw the Fed hiking really aggressively earlier on in this tightening cycle and of course the Bank of Japan not doing anything at all and in fact holding down yields with its yield curve control policy earlier on as well. So that's where this huge interest rate gap open up in favour of the US dollar relative to the yen. We're now starting to look at the other side of that cycle where the Fed is probably going to be easing later this year where the Bank of Japan might actually start tightening. And in fact we think that in particular that investors are underestimating uh, how far the Fed will ease uh, and that's likely to push yields uh, down in the US and in favor of the yen relative to, to the US dollar. And it's quite possible that Bank of Japan hikes will put a little bit of upward pressure on yields in Japan too. So all that could be quite potent and could uh, potentially give the yen quite a bit of a boost. Uh, the second reason is we think the valuation of the yen is just really low. That, you know Things like its real effective exchange rate, for example. So looking at how uh, it reflects relative prices to Japan's trading partners. I mean, on, on measures like that, it's basically as low as it's been in about 50 years. So you could see quite a big turnaround. Now that, as Marcel alluded to, would be pretty negative for Japan's stock market essentially. So you know we're forecasting Japan's equities to fall quite a bit over the rest of this year, but that's solely because we think the, the stronger yen will basically unwind some of their, their recent relative strength. What we are forecasting also is that in dollar terms, they'll hold up a bit better, partly because of that yen strength providing effect returns to investors from overseas. Remind us of what our forecasts are for Japanese equities. We, we forecast the topics, is that right? Yes, that's right. So for the topics, we're forecasting 2,440 for the end of this year. So that is almost 10% below its current level, as I said, really just reflecting the, the large rebound that we're anticipating in the yen relative to the dollar. And yes, you're right also that we do forecast the topics. Obviously, it's the Nikkei at the moment that's got everyone's attention because it's the one that's retraced its all-time high, whereas the topics is still slightly below its own mark on that basis. But the topics, of course, as listeners will know, is the, the market cap weighted index, the more modern one that I think is probably ultimately more relevant for investors than the, than somewhat old-fashioned. Okay. Marcel, I want to bring you back in. You've spoken about inflation, obviously touched on the BOJ, but just to give us a bit more on this. So you're forecasting an, an April rate hike from the BOJ. You've just published a note talking about how the BOJ has succeeded in creating a high-pressure economy. Talk about that in terms of the BOJ policy outlook. Have they finally slain deflation? They could actually argue that they, they had this slain deflation before the pandemic already when, when inflation averaged about half a percent. But I think what they they've may have finally achieved is actually meeting their 2% inflation target. I mean, a lot of the, the strength in inflation that we saw over the last couple of years was, was simply driven by the weak yen and, and soaring import costs. But they're now mounting signs that domestic inflation is, is picking up. So this this is what the Bank of Japan likes to call the, the virtue cycle between wages and prices. So wages are basically rising in response to higher prices as, as employers seek compensation for the fall in real wages. And that is, I mean, at the moment, this, this cycle is is probably strong enough to, to meet the 2% inflation target, but not more than that. So we think that the Bank of Japan will now use the the current window of opportunity uh, to end negative interest rates, to to also end yield curve control, so so basically end the most distortionary and the most extraordinary policy measures that they have in place. But we don't think there's a, a case for for outright tightening monetary policy. So once that has happened, and as the yen starts to strengthen the second half of the year, bringing down imported inflation again, we think that the Bank of Japan will will, will just stay put for the foreseeable future. 
Tom, finally, I can't let you go without asking an AI-related question. We're talking just hours after those NVIDIA earnings were out. AI at the tipping point, says CEO Jensen Huang. What does AI mean in terms of Japan stocks? Look, it's I think it's on definitely been on net a positive for Japan stocks. You know, we've seen since AI enthusiasm, if you like, started to grow around the middle of 2023 that uh, Japan stocks have done well. And, and, you know, of course, as we've discussed, a large part of that is the weakness of the yen. But I think, you know, they have benefited from enthusiasm about AI as well. So they've lagged maybe the US, which is really the center of this technology and the center of this excitement among investors about, about that. But they have actually fared better than a lot of other benchmark indices like Euro stocks, for example, or the FTSE or Canada's TSX composite as well. So other indices are actually Japan does seem to be doing a bit better and maybe benefiting a bit more from that that investor enthusiasm. And we saw that again today with a decent boost from those NVIDIA earnings for Japan's equities as well. So you know, I do think they stand to benefit from uh, that sort of enthusiasm. They're seen as being maybe a bit closer to the tech than than some, and benefiting in a bit from it a bit more than some. Not as much as the US uh, for sure, but but certainly uh, relative to some of those other benchmark indices, seems like they stand to do well. Does that imply that it's going to follow the same similar trajectory to what we're forecasting for US stocks in terms of bubble falling and then bursting end twenty twenty five ish? Yes, that's right. It's a bit more complicated by the big moves in the yen. So if we're thinking about the topics itself, it's going to have that huge headwind. But if we're thinking about the performance of Japanese equities in dollar terms, then yes, absolutely, it should do quite well. Again, not as well as the US in our forecasts, but but relatively well uh, before perhaps deflating later on in the decade. That was Tom Matthews and Marcel Tillian on Japan's stunning market rebound. I'll post Marcel's note about how the BOJ's created a high-pressure economy on the podcast page, as well as some recent analysis on the yen outlook from our FX Markets team. Watch out for our coverage of that BOJ April decision. There'll be lots of analysis about the macro policy and markets angles in the lead up, on the day and in the aftermath. And Marcel and co will be doing a drop in. That's one of our short form online briefings on the day itself. Details to follow. Uh, CE advanced clients get invites to all our drop ins as well as a host of other tools to engage directly with our economist team. Find out about our premium platform at capitaleconomics.com forward slash CE hyphen advance. Ariane Curtis from our global economics team will be participating in a drop-in this coming Thursday, 29th of February to talk all about the world economy to 2050. Ariane's the lead economist for our long-run economic outlook, which is our annual report all about the forces that will shape the global economy in the coming decades. It's in-depth analysis coupled with extensive forecasts of key macro variables across DMs and EMs. Uh, And this year's report focuses on the risks of protectionism, but also on AI as a driver of long-term global growth. I spoke to Ariane about the report earlier in the week, and I started by asking how important AI is going to be to the global outlook. Yeah, it's going to be quite important, especially in advanced economies and within that, especially in the U.S., So if we're right that AI is going to prove to be a genuine general purpose technology, then we think we could see productivity gains pretty similar to what we saw in the U.S. during the ICT digital revolution. But we think the boom isn't going to happen immediately. It's probably mostly expected to come in the 2030s, really. But that should lead to productivity growth in advanced economies averaging about 2% in that decade versus, you know, the sub 1% rates that we've become accustomed to in the past couple of decades. So 
yeah, quite important. But as as a counterweight to that, we have this this long running overhang of demographics. You know, you talk about this what sounds like a very meaningful productivity boost from AI, but I think one point your report makes is that it's not going to be enough to counter the impact of aging workforce. Isn't that right? Yeah, certainly not in some cases. So if we look at, for example, in Italy, in Germany, in Japan, all of those countries are set to see quite significant declines in their working age populations in the coming decades. The demographic outlook is also pretty bad in some emerging economies, such as the Asian tigers. And in those cases, we think that the weaker demographics, as you say, will offset any of the gains from AI. But it's not the case in every country. In fact, we think that strong net migration in Canada and Australia, for example, together with the fact that both of those economies are pretty well placed to benefit from the AI revolution, could explain why we expect growth to be the fastest among advanced economies actually in those two countries, even slightly higher than in the US. So immigration as an answer to these demographic forces and this idea that actually, you know, aging workforces isn't just an advanced economy issue. You mentioned some emerging economies that I wanted to get onto that actually, because I think one benefit of this report is it brings together these big picture themes that, that you know, the Economist team have been spending months, sometimes years analyzing, presenting them in this coherent framework for thinking through what the global economy is going to look like over the long term. And this China view is a case in point. Obviously, lots of worry about China from a, a demographic point of view. Um, but there's also a lot of attention at the moment on China's economy, the, the slowdown, the the absence of, of meaningful stimulus, and, and whether the government will push through enough stimulus. And your report makes clear that in the absence of fundamental reforms that China watchers have been waiting decades to see, the, the long-term outlook for the economy is a fairly grim one. Um, in terms of the big macro picture, the big global picture, talk about where we see China going and what that means uh, for the long term. Yeah. So as you say, we do expect growth to slow quite substantially in China, and that's really going to be quite a major drag on the global economy. So if we're right, that growth already in China is going to slow to about 2% by the end of this decade and be even weaker uh, by 2050. That's going to have a big bearing on the global growth forecast. So for example, that compares to growth in China of about 7% in the past two decades. This is one of the reasons that we don't think China is going to surpass the U.S. in the relative economic size, and it's actually barely going to gain any ground in the coming years. And since really China was one of the major engines of global growth since the financial crisis, the slowdown, as I said, is a major reason why global growth is going to slow over the coming decades. But all that being said, you know, in the report, we do try to flag some of the key upside and downside risks, given that, you know, for long term forecasts going such far out, of course, so much can change in the state of the global economy. And one of our key upside risks is that, you know, if state intervention in China was pared back and they allowed structural reforms to gather in pace, then this could really actually boost productivity growth and could even potentially lead to China eventually overtaking the US if these reforms did have significant impact. So, you know, that would be, of course, a quite big upside risk to global growth if that were to materialize. But not our base case. Um, I wanted to end just talking about inflation and interest rates. 
because obviously that is the big talking point of the moment. Um, but I would like to look further out, look out towards 2050. Once we get past this current post-pandemic burst of price rises and, and monetary tightening um, from central banks, what does the long-term future hold? Yeah, so I think we've tried to make the case in both this report and in our previous work on our star that really the era of ultra low inflation and low interest rates in advanced economies is probably over. So all those kind of some of these structural factors, which weighed quite heavily previously on both of those, we think will go into reverse in the coming decades. So as I mentioned, AI is going to boost potential growth in economies. And given the aging of populations, it's likely that desired investment relative to savings is also going to rise. And all of this is really going to push up on equilibrium interest rates. So equilibrium interest rates, which often are referred to as R star, we think will rise in the coming decades and especially in the US. And so R star, our estimate of equilibrium interest rates, we think is going to rise from, you know, close to zero in the Eurozone to about 1% and a bit over that in the US to 2%. So, you know, we've not really seen equilibrium interest rates at this level in the post-financial crisis era. That was Ariane Curtis on the Long Run Economic Outlook. I will post the report on the podcast page. There's much more in there about demographics, economic fracturing and protectionism, as well as the inflation and rate outlook. Uh, I'll also add details of the drop-in. Sign up to ask Ariane and the team your questions about the long-term outlook in the live session or just register to get a recording of the session as soon as it's finished. But that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with our preview of the UK's spring budget statement, our deep dive into the outlook for carbon prices. Uh, and Neil will be back talking central banks and inflation, bringing us up to speed on what's been happening and what we expect to see in the coming days, weeks and months. Until then, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.